Hey everyone, welcome to episode 236 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Taylor Stone, a PhD researcher and photographer based in Pensacola, Florida. After serving as a federal agent for the United States military, Taylor broke from the traditional career path to pursue photography full-time. In this episode, Taylor starts off by sharing a very personal and emotional story about her start as a photographer, and I am so thankful that she opened up and shared that with us, as it really provides excellent context and inspiration. Before we jump in, I wanted to thank our newest patrons. Thanks to Jeff Lafreniere, Jack Crone, Brandon Hurt, and Larry Milliken. Thank you all for your support in helping uh, the podcast financially over on Patreon. I really appreciate you and everyone else who has stepped up to pay for something that provides them value. You rock. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to large format photographer QT Luang, who is the author of two landmark landscape photography books. Our Treasured Lands has incredible imagery from every United States National Park, and his new book, Our National Monuments, America's Hidden Gems, includes fantastic photography from 27 national monuments. I'm absolutely in love with the layout of these two books, and I think they deserve a place on your bookshelf or coffee table. QT has a special offer for his new book, which you can learn more about by visiting the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Taylor Stone, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Oh, of course. It's, um, I've heard your name thrown out there a lot in the past, I guess probably past year or two now. And I enjoyed your conversation that you had on David Johnston's podcast and appreciate a lot of the things that you're up to. And so I thought it would be a really fun conversation. So I'm glad you could make it. Yeah. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, for, uh, for people that aren't familiar with you and your work, tell us a little bit about yourself and, um, tell us how you got into photography. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Taylor. It's spelled T-A-L-O-R. So if you can find me online, that means that you have mastered the unique spelling of my name. Um, And I focused on landscapes lately. I, well, previously I'd really focused a lot on grand landscape. I think that a lot of us start in that particular place. And I think I'm evolving in my creative journey and moving more towards uh, intimate landscapes. So, um, you know, change is an ever- ever ongoing process of photography and any creative endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a pretty normal progression. I'm I'm curious, what was it for you that made you a shift more towards the more intimate work? Yeah, I, well, I think my journey is so much like everybody else's because you you look at social media for how do you get started and a lot of the things that you see that are just viral photos are these amazing grand landscapes. And so you emulate because that's how you learn. Um, And for me, I think part of the journey has just how do I connect with what it is I'm photographing? And I have started to find that the more I slap on a telephoto lens, I could shoot for so many more hours uh, just by zooming in on the little details that are all around me. Yeah, it definitely is a a game changer when you figure out that that focal length just opens up a whole new world of opportunity. I, I couldn't agree more with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so I know that, um, you know, I listened to David's podcast and you, 
and you have a background in as as a federal officer, I believe, and I'd love to hear about <laughs> that. But then also, I know that you have a, a fairly unique um, kind of path that brought you into photography. So I'd love to hear you tell those two stories. Yeah, well, they kind of uh, weaved together, actually. So maybe I should just start from the beginning. Love um, it, love it. Yeah. So uh, today I am going to share with you a personal story that I haven't actually told before publicly. It's um, not all pretty. And I think that a lot of us just whitewash our stories and our journeys to select the best parts. And um, recently I had this discussion with somebody and I was a little bit more open than usual and found that what I had to say maybe resonates more than I think. So maybe it's time to share. Um, so I did actually start off as a federal agent. Um, I know that that sounds completely crazy. And how did I get here? I asked myself that question all the time. Um, so I started off out of college as a federal agent for the U.S. military. Um, I worked in a criminal unit. So, you know, the quintessential catching bad guys, although... I have to be honest, I'm not convinced that that was what I was really doing every day. Um, and sometimes I really question whether or not I was even helping people. Um, it's so a I'm, very... immediately, I'm immediately thinking of like Silence of the Lambs here. Is it <laughs> that kind of a thing? Like you're Jodie Foster? Uh, oh, no, hardly. Um, but okay, I hate this comparison, but like this is the most relatable thing that I can tell people so they can visualize my job. Um, I was an OSI agent. It stands for Office of Special Investigations. And the closest parallel to pop culture for that is NCIS, like the TV okay. show. Um, so they work with the Navy. That is a real organization. And OSI focuses mostly on the Air Force, which is what I was. But it is the same job. And a lot of the things that you see on the TV show, those are the types of cases we would run, although we wouldn't have Abby in the basement to run our forensics. <laughs> So it was never quite as neat and tidy as a TV show. Um, honestly, I never thought that I would do that job. I, I didn't really start off thinking that I was going to be in law enforcement. It just is one of those things that happened. Like you just go through life on this career progression and people say, oh, you'd be so good at this or, hey, here's an opportunity. And especially when you're young and ambitious, you don't know how to say no to these opportunities, even if they maybe don't click with you. It just seems sure. like you should say yes to everything. So I did. And I ended up being in law enforcement. and. I did not thrive in that environment. <laughs> well, I imagine that law enforcement comes with a lot of trauma. Um, definitely, uh, especially as a female and being one of the only females where I was located. Um, that means that I was perpetually interacting with victims of violent crimes, um, mostly women who are victims of assaults. Um, I went to a child forensic interview school. So um, anytime anything involved children, of course, I would be involved with that. So it's not the pretty parts of society. And eventually, at some point, you either become jaded. And of course, there are some people who really thrive in this type of job. And I mean, that's amazing. I'm glad that some people can do it. But for me, I got really tired of every person that I interacted with on a daily basis being really unhappy I was there because they either got caught, were a victim, knew someone who was a victim or got caught. I mean, nobody's happy when you show up 
and I'm a happy person, you know, like I just can't, (laughs) it drags you down. And the truth is that I really just didn't thrive in a bureaucratic environment. I would have never survived in the corporate world. Uh, Thank God I ended up in photography. (laughs) I just, I wouldn't have made it. Um, But, you know, that kind of brings me to how do I start in photography? And really, I have to talk about a personal story before I talk about how I got into photography, because really one grew into the other. So when I was an agent, um, I fell in love with a man who was also an agent, my partner. um, And we had this whirlwind relationship where you bond over trauma um, because you just are dealing with horrible things every day. And it really like forces this bond um, between two people that maybe wouldn't have happened in the real world or outside of this pressure cooker environment that you're functioning in that's high stress and 15 hour days and seven days a week, you know, and you just really uh, fuse together as people. Um, And, you know, we fell in love and we decided to get married. Before we got married though, We were both separating out of the military and he got really, really sick. Um, I just remember one day waking up to go to work and him saying that he had a headache and that he needed me to take him to the hospital. And I was rude um, and told him to take an Advil. (laughs) Like, I'm not taking you. Why would I take you to the hospital for a headache? That doesn't make any sense. Um, So the next thing I know, he's having a seizure. And um, from that point forward, he was having uncontrollable seizures 30 or more times a day for months and months in and out of the hospital. We, nobody could figure out what was wrong, um, except for he had had a piece of shrapnel in his brain from um, an earlier accident. Um, and they think possibly this piece of metal had shifted and created this whole spiral effect where his body was just shutting down. It was really traumatic to go through. Um, Yeah. And I went from having, you know, a really capable partner who I could rely on to being a full-time caretaker. Um, Uh, My, my whole world was taking care of this other adult who was counting on me to be there. Um, Medical appointments, medical decisions, um, you know, a lot of the time he was confused and um, like other mental side effects of having this many seizures where he just wasn't always able to make the right choices for himself. Um, And I would like to think that I tried to do a good job, although I was young and I mean, who could do the right thing in every situation? I don't know. I can't judge my own uh, success rate. (laughs) So it was impacting him uh, physically and cognitively. Yeah. I mean, you know, there were times when he was all there and then there were times he wasn't. And this is early on, you know, later things got a little more manageable, but it was a real problem. Um, And I'm not a doctor. Uh, I can't hypothesize about everything that's connected with the human body, but things began to change pretty drastically. Um, And again, I, I don't know how that type of illness can affect somebody's mental health. I'm sure if nothing else, um, it could make you easily depressed or, you know, and that's all very understandable, but things changed pretty radically for us. Um, you know, the relationship became extremely abusive and I'm telling this story because I think this is something that should be discussed, uh, rather than ignored. 
I've yeah. spent my life pretending that none of this happened and just skipping over it. And I think if I actually speak about it, that could help other people because this is probably more relevant to more people who would care to say it out loud. Absolutely. But, you know, he got really sick and um, the relationship just completely spiraled into an, into abuse where I felt I couldn't leave because I was taking care of this person who was also hurting me. Um, you know, and one of the last things that happened is I almost died. Um, you know, we were staying at a hotel and, uh, you know, we had had an argument and I just was snatched off the bed, thrown on the floor and choked, um, until I thought I was going to die. Um, I just remember losing consciousness. And the next thing I remember was that there was security there, you know, and this was kind of a breaking point for me. Um, of I didn't want to die in this situation where I felt obligated to stay. So, you know, life has these crazy turns and you go from being the strong, capable person to being one of the victims that I would have previously investigated, right? I mean, my, how the tables have turned. And at some point you have to make a decision to save your life. And kind of going in the background of all of this chaos is the fact that I had finally picked up a camera for the first time. And that was saving me. Photography was something I immediately knew I was in love with from the moment I, I first understood what it was as a child. And as an adult, revisiting this childhood love absolutely pulled me out of this dark place in this spiral. And it gave me the courage to change. You know, the the night that I left, this is going to be funny because I, I'm actually pretty, I'm pretty well known, I guess, for um, my solo backpacking, car camping, out camping all the time in a tent. Like this is, you know, something that I'm really public about. It's a huge part of my persona now. But the first time I ever put up a tent in my entire life was the day I left my home. Wow. I, ha I had never been camping as a kid ever. Never, not one time. I never knew how to put up a tent. And the day I left, I grabbed my camera and I drove to Walmart because I didn't know any better. And I walked into the camping section and I bought a sleeping bag and a tent. <laughs> I'm serious. And I went out in the woods and I went camping. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend it was all perfect. Do you know how long it takes for a grown adult to try and set up a tent when they've never done it before? I mean, I'm going to say it probably took you a couple of hours, especially if you've never done it before. It was pretty bad. Like, you know, and you're already like at a pretty low point in your life. <laughs> and you're just like, I can't even put up a tent. I'm a total failure. And I mean, okay, this is embarrassing. But it literally took me two weeks of camping in a tent to realize that you needed stakes. I'm serious. I didn't know. Uh, I kept waking up in the middle of the night and the tent had like collapsed on me because I didn't know that like you had to stake it down. I just didn't know. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And it was this crazy learning curve and adventure that I went on where I feel like I just grew exponentially as a person. And the whole time I was doing that, I had a camera in my hand. I left Virginia, which is where I was living. And I drove until I didn't want to drive anymore. And I eventually ended up somewhere in Arizona, just hanging out in the desert, living in a tent. I mean, it was this crazy whirlwind that I went through. And all of this time, I was by myself um, trying to work through 
you know, what did I want to do with my life from here on out? I had just gone through something pretty traumatic, uh, you know, and you have a choice at these pivotal moments in your life. Anytime you go through something traumatic or something pivotal, like you have a choice that you have to make about whether or not you're going to let that positively impact you or negatively impact you. And one of the best decisions I ever made in my life was that I sat down and had a real conversation with myself, like talking to myself like a crazy person, trying to figure out whether or not I was going to be able or willing to trust anybody ever again. And I chose trust, you know, like I sat down and I had a real conversation with myself and decided that I was going to choose trust and that I was going to say yes to people when they are, you know, when I came across opportunities, I was going to be willing to offer that trust, let people prove it to me. And that I just had to do that because the alternative is that you close yourself down to everything that could come into your life. You can't live that way. No, I wasn't willing to sacrifice everything. um, And I wasn't willing to sacrifice the years I have left in this life that I could be full of joy. So I chose trust and um, that has completely changed my life. And having a camera in my hand, it allowed me to process my feelings in a way that I don't think I was emotionally mature enough to do on my own because I could just work through my feelings with my photographs. And um, one of the main points of departure for me was when I finally returned back to Virginia to sell my house. Um, It was almost a year later because I had been living on the road for a year just trying to figure my things out. And I went home and I emptied out everything in that house, put it on the market. It was totally empty. And I created a self-portrait series that I have never shown to anybody ever. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, And it is raw and emotional. And um, that was kind of the moment where I realized that this photography thing was for me. It was how I wanted to process the way I felt about the world. And, um, you know, that was definitely the point of departure. So when you were first out in the field with your camera shortly after this traumatic event, how, how did you use photography in, in nature to process what you had gone through and how did that come through in your images? So I think I just wasn't ready to talk about it. You know, I wasn't ready to have like a real discussion about anything that had happened and I don't want to say that the camera was an escape because I think that's not, um, that doesn't give it enough credit, right? I, I never felt like I was running from my problems, but having that camera allowed me to kind of step outside of my body for just a moment and like explore this world and appreciate its beauty. Um, and that I think really contributed to my ability to find happiness, learn how to trust and see the world as like a place that I actually want to be a part of rather than apart from. Would you say that your relationship with nature through the through the camera was kind of your first kind of foray into trusting something again? Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, right, especially like you, you, you didn't know anything about it, right? You didn't know how Nothing. to put up a tent. So you literally had to forge this new relationship with this new thing that you were probably intimidated by at the very le- at the least. And so you oh, had yeah. to basically throw yourself into it. 
I mean, it's it was sink or swim, you know, like I just had to figure this out, you know, and I had some money saved up so that I could like do this and go on this crazy adventure. Like I wasn't completely <laughs> irresponsible, although, you know, my grandparents did call me and ask me if I was OK because they heard I was living in a car. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, one of the things that I did that was amazing is um, I promised myself also that I would say yes to anything that came across my path that was safe and would not hurt me or others, right? So I promised myself to say yes. This was this um, trust exercise that I was like putting myself through and it was pretty scary. But um, because at that point in my life, I mean, I was so closed off before this journey. I, I said no to everything. I was so pessimistic and so negative. And I didn't want to be that person anymore. I wanted to say yes. And I actually had a cool experience that happened out of that. Um, <laughs> so I know this makes me sound like a completely neurotic person or maybe just really naive, which I totally was. But uh, that year I was on the North Rim of the Grand Canyon and I had been looking for overnight camping permits because I thought I wanted to go down into the canyon, but you know, I didn't plan ahead. Nothing was available. You know, I hung out on the North Rim for like two or three days, hoping that like something would open up. Nothing did. Um, so one day I was about to leave the Grand Canyon and I said, you know, I'm just going to hike like four miles down and come back up. And like, that'll be my goodbye because I can't do the whole thing. And so I go down four miles from the North Rim on North Kaibab Trail. And if anyone has ever done that, they know that there's like a little bridge a couple miles down. And I was standing on the bridge, just soaking in this incredible view of the canyon. And this lady stopped and she asked me uh, what I was doing, how I was, could I take her picture? Of course I said, yes. And I said, you know, I really wanted to walk across the Grand Canyon. I want to do a rim to rim. I couldn't get a permit. Um, and, you know, I just, I'm bummed about it, but I'll come back. She looked at me and said, um, you know, you look really young. Why don't you just do it? I bet you could just do it. I bet you could just walk straight across. And granted, this is like noon, right? Like this is not the time of day you start this kind of thing. And I just looked at her. I said, um, you know, I don't have any food, um, you know, or anything. Uh, she said, well, I got a bag of trail mix. <laughs> Here, you should just you know, you have one life, you should just do it. In case you're listening and wondering, please don't do what I did. It was really <laughs> not the safest thing. <laughs> but I did actually, I, I said, you know, okay, sure. Um, and I just started walking. I only had a day bag. Like, <laughs> I was so unprepared for this. And I, I kid you not, I walked across the Grand Canyon. Um, I walked all the way across the bottom and up the other side. And I thought I was dead when I got to the top. I mean, like it was the next day, like mid morning when I reached the top on the other side, I had been chased by bats. Um, I had been covered in dust. Like it was a hot mess, but I got up to the other yeah, side that... looking like death. <laughs> I was gonna say and, that Bright um, Angel trail is pretty steep. Yeah, yeah, I was dying. It was bad. Um, and the, the tricky part was I got blisters on the end of my toes on the descent at the very start. 
because your feet get crunched in the toe of your boot. And, um, you know, then you can't take your boots off because your feet will swell. So you're like living with those blisters the whole rest of the way. Um, But when I got to the top, I was so relieved. And if you know the South Rim, you know, there's an ice cream shop like right there when you come out. (laughs) And I looked at that ice cream shop and thought, oh, my God, that looks amazing. I really want that. And I walk in there and realize that I didn't have any money or ID. I had nothing. Wow. Yeah. You just went went for it. Yeah. It was so stupid, but it was so amazing. (laughs) I got up to the other side and um, I had no money. I had no ID. Um, I had no plan of how I was going to get back to the North Rim, which requires a $99 uh, shuttle. And it turns out they don't take IOUs for that because I think a few too many dirt bags had tried that one. Um, and they took one look at me and decided that I probably wasn't good for it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I found my way back to the North Rim eventually. And, um, yeah, so wow. I said yes. It was amazing. My whole life completely changed because of this willingness to choose trust and to say yes to things. And it completely pivoted my life. So what did you learn from that experience? And how have you leveraged it uh, going forward into your photography career? So going from that, you know, it took a while. I don't know if when I was going through all of this, I wasn't setting out with this idea that I was going to build a photography business. Like that was not, you know, what I was thinking I was going to do. I thought maybe if, you know, maybe I could get cool pictures, maybe I could sell some prints. Um, It would be really cool to have a website. Uh, These were the things I was thinking of. I was never thinking in terms of, oh, I should run workshops one day or, you know, partner up with Munch workshops like that never (laughs) crossed my mind. Um, But when I actually got back home or got back to Virginia, I thought, you know, these crazy experiences maybe have something to help other people. I started doing speaking engagements at the REI there and talking about solo travel, safe travel for women, budget travel, um, how to say yes in life. And like all of these talks, they just continually, I mean, were totally filled, totally filled, totally filled. I mean, I was shocked that so many people were interested in this kind of story. Um, And it gave me the courage that I needed to kind of branch out and be a little bit more bold. I got really involved with a local photography club, a couple of them actually. And I can't say enough about what a good local photography club can mean for anyone starting out in photography because they were without a doubt the wind beneath my wings. Um, And my very first workshop I ever ran was to Death Valley, and it was 100% filled by people in this local camera club who trusted me, you know, a young person who really didn't know anything, and they trusted me to take them there. And it it wasn't designed to be maybe a workshop at the start, right? I didn't have that type of confidence, but it was a, I know this place really well, and I'll bring you. You know, it, it was a whim that turned into a dream that turned into a business, and Things just have the snowball effect. That's so interesting. So you you mentioned that you took some bold steps. I would I would love to hear more about what that looks like because I think a lot of people, um, at least people that I know, like try to make bold steps but then get nowhere. So like, what's been different about your your uh, approach to kind of jumping into 
photography that's made you successful in in that using that bold theme? I don't I don't know. Let's see. What I would, this is hard because I, I don't, who knows how to credit themselves for their success. I mean, maybe I need to be a little more narcissistic about this, <laughs> but I think what it comes down to is that I do have a strong sense of business and work ethic. Um, like I think anyone who is able to thrive in a photography business, it's not just about photography. It's about all of these other things that come along with taking pictures to make a business successful, um, being reliable, answering your emails. I mean, these are like the logistical things being, you know, persistent with your federal park paperwork. Like these are all of the persistent things that you have to have to be successful in this uh, industry. And thankfully I'm really, really tenacious. Um, I know if you're listening on the podcast, you can't see me, but I am a redhead and we are known for being very stubborn. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, make, that, that makes a little bit of sense for sure. You know, I, I, um, I think we've talked about this on the show a lot before, but what I've noticed is that um, a lot of people that are successful in photography, it's usually not because they're really great photographers. It's because they have, you know, like you're saying, like this tenacity or they have business sense or they have marketing skills or, or whatever. And then they, they also happen to love photography um, mm -hmm. as well. So I'm curious, what kind of percentage would you kind of put yourself into in terms of that? particular formula? Um, well, first off, I have to say that I don't have any marketing sense, I don't think. Um, I still really struggle with ascribing value to my own work or like considering that it is valuable to other people. I struggle with that. It's, you know, the classic imposter syndrome that I have yet to overcome. Um, probably many people listening are familiar <laughs> with that feeling that, you know, at what point are you allowed to call yourself a photographer? Like, at what point are you good enough? What is enough? How do you define these things? I still struggle with all of that. But, you know, I would say that I have a really strong work ethic and a decent business sense. I also think one of the most important things that is not frequently talked about is that I really consider myself to be a team player. Um, and I genuinely, with all of my heart, believe that when other people in photography do well and thrive, it creates space for all of us to do well and thrive. You know, the world is not a pie. And if one person gets a slice, then it's gone. That's not the way it works. I want other people to make a ton of money selling their prints because it creates value in landscape photography and it creates a market for this that enables me to also step in. So, you know, just being a team player means that you also get welcomed into more circles. So that will enable your success. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think what some people I think struggle with is finding what circle you want to get invited into. Um, yes. So what, well, what does that what does that look like for you? Because I know that uh, when we had talked before the podcast, you had talked about some of the struggles that you've had, kind of breaking into photography. Um, and so I'd be curious to hear kind of what's some of those themes are in terms of what the yeah. struggles are. Oh man, yes. Uh, look, I did this the hard way. I really did. Um, I'm really good at doing things the hard way. So. 
when I first went on this whole photography journey from the very beginning, I, I did it alone. Um, one of the greatest mistakes I've ever made was doing it alone. And it wasn't because I didn't think I needed help or, or anything like that. I didn't know how to ask for help. And I didn't even understand what I might need help with or mm-hmm. who from. Um, when I started, I didn't know a single other person who was a photographer. I had no template for what this might look like uh, professionally or you know, what a business model looked like or even what good photography looked like. I mean, I really, I, I knew nothing. I was so naive. I, I started with nothing. And, um, you know, I, I didn't go to school to learn photography. Like I learned the hard way. Okay. Like when I started shooting, I knew the aperture controlled your depth of field and gosh, I sure did want everything sharp. So I shot everything at F22. I mean, these are the mistakes you make when you have no mentor, you know, when you are doing it on your own, I know, please, like, I am not the only person to do that. You don't have to admit it, but <laughs> so hey, many I did people it. do. Yeah. I remember when I, I, mean, when I bought, I remember when I bought my, my Nikon D7000, I, I think I shot everything at F18. I was like, oh, it has to be super sharp. Like, you want it sharp. Yeah. Like, well, that's how you do it. And, you know, of that's course, that's not, that's not true, but right. yeah, no, it, it is funny though, because I, I'm, I think, I was similar to you. Like I was kind of boneheaded and just like, I'll figure it all out myself, whatever. Um, but you know, that takes a lot longer. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I could be so much further along if I had just reached out to the right person and asked for help. And honestly, the, the fact that I look back now and recognize that as one of the mistakes that I made, um, that has really shaped my approach to workshops and the webinars and just how I engage on my social media, like everything about, I hate like to say my brand, but what I think that I'm about is trying to be inclusive and letting people know that it is okay to like reach out and ask for help, whether it's me or somebody else, you know, if you are struggling with trying to get started, reach out and ask, you know, there, there are so many welcoming people in this photography community. And it found, it took me a really long time to like figure that out. And to get over myself and my fear of, you know, reaching out and approaching other people or not being accepted or not being good enough. And it, it just took a long time for me to get there. And I could be a lot further along if I had just taken a chance and reached out for help earlier on. Um, as it stands today, I think that I have an amazing group of people surrounding me. Um, you know, I have... I think a nice network of other photographers who we all share information together and we all really contribute to helping each other. And I love that. You know, I love knowing that if I have a question, I can reach out and ask and somebody who's in a position of authority can help me. And I also love that I can reciprocate and do the same for others. So we're all in this together. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I like what you said. Um, Kind of a metaphor I like to use is, you know, a high tide rises all boats. Mm. Um, in terms of helping each other out. And if you're successful, I'm successful. Um, but I have noticed, you know, there is a, I don't know, I don't know if it's a trend or maybe there's just certain people out there that, you know, thrive on the com- competitive side of things. Like maybe they're yeah. just very competitive people in general. And, you know, I, I, you know, I was an athlete in high school and in college. So like, I like competition. So I, I understand that and it kind of motivates me as well, but it can also, it can also 
I don't know, be a poisonous attitude. And I'm curious kind of what's your thinking on, on competition as it relates to photography? You know, I think it's okay to be competitive. You know, there's different styles of how people approach things and it's okay for all styles. Like you don't have to take my approach. If you are a competitive person, then in that motivates you, then that's awesome. I mean, use that to drive you and like put a fire underneath you. I think that it can become detrimental though, if you're not careful, um, because it has a tendency to break down relationships rather than build them up. And, you know, I have seen people become isolated because of that competitiveness. And ultimately that doesn't help, help you either. I'm a competitive person. I mean, anyone who knows me would know that you just don't want to get in like a wrestling match with me or anything. Like I am so competitive. It is really bad, especially because I'm super uncoordinated and I've been terrible at (laughs) all sports. So if you're competitive, but you're bad at sports, then that's a really bad combo. So um, I, I just, it can, it can be unhelpful sometimes, but if that's what you use to motivate yourself, then by all means, light that fire. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes I think um, that the competitive stuff and you know some of those negative uh, effects that you're kind of describing sometimes are a coping mechanism that people use for like the the imposter syndrome, like you're describing. Mm-hmm. It's like, like I don't, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I know that I in the past I've seen myself do some of that where you're like trying not trying but like unintentionally tearing someone else down so that you can build yourself up and you know Mm -hmm. I think in hindsight that's really bad Um, but I think we all have some well not all but I think some of us do have that competitive tendency to to try to get an edge up on somebody or or maybe we have this feeling like um, like hey I'm working hard and I'm not seeing like I'm not seeing the success that you're seeing. What's that about? You know, so I think there's a lot of oh, things gosh, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, um, you know, last year I got brought on board by Mute Workshops to be one of their pros and, you know, they're an amazing organization. And I have to be honest with you, I don't know how I scored this kind of honor. I mean, I think that it's amazing and I'm so glad to be part of their team, but I did actually receive a message from somebody that um, like I had a lot of respect from wondering like, you know, why I would have gotten chosen because I was not anybody of any note. Um, And this was a person who I thought was my friend. Right. And it's that competitiveness that I feel like, God, that like really cut me deep, you know, Um, because in this industry, I think we spend so much time alone, right? Especially like at home in the field, you're by yourself all the time. Gosh, like, you know, that sense of community is really valuable and really important. And you don't want to tear that down or have it torn down by other people. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think, um, I think that that is a double-edged sword because if, if you, like I can put myself in your shoes in that situation, but I can also put myself in that other person's shoes yeah. to say like, you know, like I have lots of friends of mine who have been full-time professional photographers for over 10 years and barely anybody knows about them or, and like they have incredible work and it's like, yeah, and it's like you see other people who, and I'm not saying this is you, but I'm saying, you, you know, you look around and you see people who have maybe not great work, 
Yeah. And nobody knows who they are. And you see them all of a sudden, they're hugely successful. And it's like, how did that happen? Like, how does this happen? And so right. I think that's a lot of us, you know, a lot of people are like, like when that when you see that happening over and over and over again, you're like, what is happening? Like, what the heck? Well, yeah, we're so all in the viral era. Like, we can't predict what's trending, right? Like, it's this phenomenon. And I'm not saying people don't deserve it. I mean, at all. Please don't take that out of what I'm saying. I mean, I don't know if I deserve it. I don't know. You know, right. well, how I don't can know I value my this. own worth? And, like, I think it's natural for people to compare themselves to others. Like, this is a totally normal, very human reaction. Yes. You yes. know, I do it. I mean, I look at other people's success sometimes. And I'm like, man, like, God, what would I have to do that kind of opportunity? But it's what you do with that feeling, I think that matters, right? It's okay to feel that. And it's how you choose to, you know, engage with that feeling that is meaningful. No, I think that's a, that's a very wise thing to say, because for myself, I, ever since I got into photography, I've found myself having those thoughts and feelings all of the time, um, you know, in hindsight. And probably in the last five years, what I've tried to do with it is just channel it in words to just work, just work harder. You know, like I'm, I'm not going to make sense of how that happened, but all mm -hmm. I can do is try to figure out how to do better for myself, you know? Right. I mean, I, I go through struggles too. Like, okay, for example, gosh, I have the most horrible relationship with social media, particularly Instagram. I mean... <laughs> Lord, I'm so sorry if you follow me. I post like 10 times a year. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I'm so bad at it. And that started like two years ago because like two years ago, I was so fanatical about growing my business and like really like wanting to be successful. So I need to build a social media presence and like growing my account. So I, I was posting and engaging and then I was like, well, if I post, then I have to comment back and I have to go like all their pictures. And, oh my gosh, it just became this toxic, overwhelming spiral. I couldn't do it anymore. And for better or for worse, my response to I can't do this anymore was to just not. <laughs> Rather than like create a healthy relationship with these platforms, I just like completely checked out of it. And, you know, now I'm in a position where I actually have this really great new body of work where I'm focusing on more intimate landscapes. And I, I have really, I think in the last year, redefined my relationship with my own images. And I haven't posted any of them because I don't even know how to get started because I'm so terrified of going into this social media death spiral again that I just, I don't know, I'm hoarding right now. <laughs> That's so funny. I have um, a friend of mine, David Kingham is the same way. He, he, mm. he never posts and I hung, I hung out with him a few months ago and, and I'm like, dude, I haven't seen you post any of your new work in like two years. Like, what have you been doing? And then he, you know, he pulls out his computer and shows me all this incredible stuff. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> put this stuff out there. I want to see you. I want to see this stuff, you know? I know. I know. I know. I mean, at some point I'm going to fix this whole mental block that I have, but it's not today. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. I, um, I think it's all about balance, you know. I think like I post maybe like it's there's no schedule for me. Um it's maybe it's once a week, maybe it's once a month, maybe it's once every two weeks. It's just like it's like kind of like whenever I know I'm going to have time to actually engage, but I know that that's not very often. Mhm. Mm 
And you so. see, like, this is the, my competitive side is because I see people who I respect a lot who are going to post every single day. I mean, <laughs> you, you know the people I'm talking about. They're posting oh, yeah. every day. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. First off, how do you have the time? Second off, how do you have so much amazing content to post every day? Like, I would consider myself fortunate to get, like, 10 portfolio quality shots in a year. Like, sure. I think that's a good year for me because I'm so picky and I'm like a pixel peeper and it's just a problem. But, you know, I I get really competitive about that. I do. No, I, yeah. I Just let it go, Taylor. Just. <laughs> I have to. I just don't. have to let it go. <laughs> well, how about this? We'll make a, we'll make a deal. I will <laughs> stop caring what other people are doing to become so successful. If you stop caring why or how people are able to post on social media all the time. We'll make a, okay. We'll make a deal. I can do that. I can try and do that. <laughs> well, you're going to, if you, if I ever start posting in, you'll be like, wow, is she okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go turn notifications on right after this. <laughs> I post on my stories all the time because you can set it and forget it. See, yeah. that's my, that's my compromise. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, let's um, let's totally change topics. Um, sure. And I'm 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 I really want to dig into learning more about your research. And because I know I know this is a huge leap, but you went from you know this traumatic situation of being a federal officer to um, you know having this relationship, then branching off on your own and rediscovering yourself through nature and photography, mm-hmm. um, and not knowing how to put up a tent. And then now you're pursuing a PhD um, and doing research. So I, I yeah. really want to hear about like the journey between that and and getting oh, to the gosh. PhD piece. But then also yeah. I'd love to learn more just about what the research you're doing is mm-hmm. and how does it intersect with your photography. So I know that was a long litany of words. Don't worry, out. I got you. Okay. Good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, after all of this, you're like, how many lives has she lived? And like, does she know what she's doing? And the answer is probably no. Like, I don't think I know what I'm doing. I'm figuring it out. You know, aren't we all? But yeah, so I, um, when I was first starting this photography journey, well, okay, let me back up. The first thing you have to know about me is that I am a nerd. Okay, like, pure and simple. I love academia. Like, I started college when I was 14, 15. I I just couldn't help myself. Like I started college. I got a master's degree. I, I, you know, I loved every second. I've never made a B (laughs) in my life. I love this stuff. So when I was starting into photography, uh, I had to have a backup plan because I'm not stupid, you know, and photography making it successfully is, you know, I know that was a long shot and that I was taking a huge risk. And so my backup plan was teaching college. I love academia. Why not be a professor? I would totally dig that job. So I started my PhD around the same time. And I have been so fortunate with the program that I chose. Uh, so Dr. Carp, you probably are never going to hear this, but you know she has been my uh, my um, department chair throughout this process. She has been so supportive of the fact that I'm also a photographer that it has made this entire process so much easier um, because it would be really hard in an academic department that does not uh, understand that I am also an artist. <laughs> Um, so basically my research has focused on Greenland 
And that really came from the very first time I went to Greenland. I just became completely obsessed with this place uh, and decided I wanted to know everything there was to know about Greenland. So that's what I made like the next three years of my life about. Um, And so right now I'm going into my dissertation phase. Only three weeks ago, I passed my comprehensive exams, which is like your halfway point in your PhD. Yay, passed. Um, So that was stressful. And that means that I go into beginning my dissertation, which is where I'm at now. So no, for the people asking that I get asked this all the time, I am not done. I am not graduating. I can't even think about that. I have like two or three years left. So that is... What's the rush? (laughs) That is beyond the horizon for me right now. Um, It's a long... It's a marathon, right? Not a sprint. So... um, Anyway, so my research is focused on Greenland. I'm in the International Studies Department, and specifically my topic is about themes of transition in indigenous culture in Greenland. So I'm looking at things like climate change and tourism, modernization, globalization, all of these factors that are creating massive, massive cultural changes in uh, Greenland's rural communities. So just from spending some time in Greenland, I've spent two summers there now. um, And I have really invested my time in trying to understand how unique this place is and all the demographics and yada yada nerdy things here. Um, And it has really just created this passion and love. So first off, I can't wait to get back to Greenland. I was supposed to go in 2020. I was supposed to go in 2021. I had this whole summer planned. Now it's pushed to 2022. Like I cannot wait to get back to Greenland um, to do some photography and pursue my research topics. So, and I've had such a supportive department. It just blows me away. They have told me flat out that they fully expect my photos to be a part of my dissertation, which I've never heard of anyone doing that before. So um, I'm pretty pumped. That's really cool. Um, I'm I'm wondering through your research and and the study that you're doing on the impact of climate change and tourism and all of that on the mm-hmm. indigenous cultures. I'm um, I'm guessing that you've probably seen a mixture of both positives and negatives in terms of yeah. the impacts on on the people there. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what what you're finding? Yeah. Um, okay. So I have written. About a year ago, I wrote a paper about the impacts of mass tourism on Greenland's uh, rural communities. And so what I have noticed there and what a lot of the data is showing is that there's a huge increase in the Arctic cruise industry um, that is being made possible by ice-free waters. Um, So now you don't even have to have an ice-hardened vessel to go (laughs) cruise around Greenland. I mean, it could be a carnival cruise ship from the Caribbean. They can just send it up there you know, which is crazy and just mind boggling. The the number of cruise ships has exploded exponentially. In just the difference of one year, I went from in Alulasat seeing on average, maybe one or two cruise ships a week to on one particular day, the following year, there were four cruise ships anchored in the town of Lulisat. This is a town of 4,500 people and you have like over 5,000 people on these cruise ships. So I mean, the population of the town just doubled, you know, beyond the impact of what the heck, um, the strain on plumbing, electricity, water usage, they had to close the grocery store, right? Because people were, I mean, 
they get resupplied at infrequent intervals. If tourists go buy all the bread, there's no bread for the people that live there, right? Like these are serious issues. Um, people just in mass hordes trampling over the Arctic tundra. I mean, it, it's hard to watch. It really is. Mm. It's, it's super hard to watch. And so that inspired me to do uh, a study on it. And uh, it's it hasn't gone into like a statistical phase. I'm mostly at a theoretical phase, but just talking about critical theory and like how do we unpack this idea that the globalized world has taught us that tourism is good for a country's development, right? Like this is just a broadly accepted thing. You could say, well, tourism is great for development. It diversifies your economy. And it sounds so logical and so easy to agree with that, but it's so much more complex with that because in the Arctic, when we're talking about cruise ships, these are multinational companies. The money you're spending on that ticket, that is not going to that local community. It is going to sail away with that ship to whatever country owns that ship, right? Like usually they have guides on the ship. They're not using local guides. Your hotel room is on the ship. You're not using the local economy. All your food is on the ship. Your souvenirs are on the ship. What are you providing? I mean, nothing, nothing. You're, you're providing very little to these peripheral communities that do not have the financial capital to capture tourist income, right? So like in these tiny settlements that have 50 people in them, they can't build a souvenir shop to what sell trinkets to a tourist for six weeks out of the year when it's viable. They don't have the money to do that. So they can't capture any of that revenue. And so it's a, it's a commodification of culture. That's one of my conclusions about it is that, you know, we live in a capitalistic world where we commodify anything. We give monetary value to things, right? And this is simply put a commodification of indigenous culture. Like we're giving it a monetary value. People are purchasing the experience, right, of somebody else's culture. They're just buying the, that experience, but they're giving nothing back. There's not an exchange happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it's hard to watch. I guess my cautionary tale is that if you're going to go to places like this, you really need to do your research about who you're going with. Um, go with somebody who's going to contribute to the local economy, employ local guides. Um, it, it just It's on you to do the diligence and make sure that you're helping and not harming. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges that we have as nature and landscape photographers is that duality between you know the responsibility that we have to to the places that we want to photograph and pre- present that beauty to the world with by also balancing out the fact that by presenting those images to the world, you're going to then want increase the number of people who want to also go do that thing that you oh, yeah. are sharing. And that's, I always am mentally struggling with that because it's, you know, it's like, well, I don't want to stop making photographs, but I also <laughs> don't want to make this place worse because of my photographs. Right. I mean, that's the the whole reason that geotagging is such a hot topic, right? Is like, where is your responsibility for the things that you're sharing with the world? You know, do you just click it, submit it and walk away and what happens happens? Or are you somehow responsible for the fruits of that, that thing that you did? You know, it's, it's complicated. There's so much gray area. Well, I think you could apply that to lots of our behavior, right? Um, I mean, I love the fact that your research is on climate change and its impact on mm-hmm. Greenland's indigenous people. You know, I've, I've noticed that a lot of full-time professional photographers are somewhat forced into 
carbon intensive activities to make this career work. For oh, example, yeah. traveling all over the world to these workshops, participation in NFTs, selling large quantities of prints. Like, how can we mentally balance these conflicting realities as photographers who often our mission is to want to celebrate the natural world, right? It's like right. these two uh, conflicting ideas. It, it's so difficult. I actually have had this conversation with myself multiple times. Like, how do I square the things that I research with the things that I do? Right? I mean, this is like, at what level are you a hypocrite? Um, you know, my answer to this is maybe not the most intuitive one. So just stick with me. Um, I genuinely feel, first off, I'm not saying that individuals are powerless. All right. Like each of us can make changes to make the world a better place. Um, like we can all take little steps, but the main issue that I see is that the majority of the pollution is coming from larger corporations. And I think that when we point at people and say, well, you fly everywhere or you drive an SUV for your photo workshop, like we're ignoring the real issue and instead pointing at little like individuals whose tiny actions, of course, add up. But ultimately, I think it's so much more fruitful for us to focus our efforts on large corporations to demand change at a larger level that has vastly more impact. And I think it also benefits a lot of these large corporations when we're constantly pointing at each other uh, for jet setting across the world rather than, I mean, it's, it's better for a corporation, right? For us to point the finger at the photographer or the politician or whoever, rather than hold these company accountable for the massive waste that they're dumping in the ocean or putting into landfills. I mean, so I, I just, I think sometimes it can distract from this larger issue. And I personally make the little changes that I can in my life, but I'm focusing most of my attention and efforts on voting for the right policies and trying to hold corporations accountable because I personally view that that's where the real change is going to happen. I like your, I like your answer. Um, I guess the only thing I would counter with is um, for, for people who have a significant social media following or perhaps a you know, a relatively well-known persona online or whatever, I think, you know, in some ways you are kind of like a mini corporation because people are going to see mm. what you're doing and they're going to emulate it. And they're going yeah. to, you know, that like, for example, we recently heard about, well, we've heard lots of people have massive levels of success with, with NFTs, which is awesome. Artists yeah. getting paid lots of money. Yeah, that's um, amazing. But at, this, but at the same time, it generates this huge amount of press. Yeah. And then more and more people are going to go do that thing, which is then going to contribute more carbon. So it's, it's, it's uh, so hard. It's so right. sweet. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Cause I just want to cheer, right? Like, um, you know, when I see people being successful and that I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like people are being recognized for their work. I'm like, hell yeah, this is so great. Um, but it is, it's so bittersweet. Um, you know, I, months ago minted an nft i was curious about the process and i did sure. it but I, I didn't promote anything i didn't even announce it of course it didn't sell i mean it was just this pointless pursuit um but it was an itch i had to scratch you know and i don't know what i will do in the future with nfts i'm watching carefully um and 
looking and seeing what's happening and trying to understand what or if my role is going to be in this. Um, and I don't know yet. I, I don't, but it's, it's a really hard topic, you know, but I cheer for the people who are doing well, honestly. Yeah. I, no, I do want to see other artists be successful. So it's um, like you said, it is bittersweet because it's um, it would be great. I don't know. It's like, cheering on uh something that has positive impact for one person but then you know there's this huge negative aspect to it as well so it's mm -hmm. it's hard like i just feel like people should be more i don't know pragmatic about the whole thing like it's not all good. right and it's not all bad it's not all bad i mean i don't know it's so complicated and i'm i'm not educated enough in it honestly to delve much deeper than we've already gotten so <laughs> no you're good Sure. Um, but first, I, I wanted to ask you a question that I'm sure we're going to get a lot of eye rolls about, but um, I, think, oh I think it's an important one. So like I said, I think a lot of our female listeners are either going to be excited about this question or they're going to roll their eyes. So I'm sorry in advance <laughs> for the question, but I'm just really curious what it has it been like for you to travel solo as, as a female? Yeah, I, well, it, it has been interesting. Uh, I personally, first off, I feel totally safe and I probably have this luxury of saying that because in part, you know, I was a federal agent, like I've done five months of hand-to-hand -hand combat training, baby, like come at me. I wish you would. <laughs> You're right? like, let's do this. <laughs> like I'm fine. <laughs> but honestly, the only times I've ever felt unsafe have been in cities because I truly consider the only real threat to me to be other humans. Um, and there's a lot more people in the city than there is in the wild. So I am not afraid to hike alone. I'm not afraid to camp alone. I will car camp alone. I'm asleep at a truck stop. I'll do all of those things and not even bat an eye. But I have been um, chased and harassed in New York multiple times. I have been chased, scared for my life in Seattle. Um, I got surrounded and almost jumped by a group of vagrants in Philly. I mean, like, Every sketchy thing that has ever happened to me has been in a city. So um, take what you will from that. Um, the more interesting aspect of being a female has been how other photographers treat me, I would say. Okay, yeah, um, let's, let's go there. Yeah, I mean, this is just the truth. So if this uh, is you, please stop doing this. Um, so if I had a dollar for the number of times that I have had a male photographer at some location offer me if I need help with my camera settings, I'm so serious. And I know look, you are. I've, women, I've you know what I'm talking about. Like this has happened to you. I am not alone. Like the number of times that that has happened is just mind-blowing and I'm not even talking about like guys trying to pick you up with this pickup line I mean people really just assume that you have no clue what you're doing and it's pretty shocking yeah I, I um I was hanging out with my friend Jennifer Renwick a couple months ago and she told me a story from a couple years ago where she was shooting with a telephoto lens with her tripod on some road mm -hmm. near Crested Butte and some guy drove up in a truck and was trying to explain to her how she was doing everything wrong and Oh my and God. She, and she's like, I'm good. Thanks. I'm, I think I'll be yeah. fine. I know what I'm doing. It's not, it's, <laughs> I've heard so yeah. many stories like that. It's unbelievable. It's so real. Um, so I used to do a lot of art festivals 
And at the art festivals, I would constantly, um, if I was by myself, I would always be stared straight at, even though there's a big picture of me in this booth with my artist statement. Like, it's very clear that this is me. And your husband took these? I am always asked that. Who is the artist? Constantly asked that. And God forbid, I had to ban my boyfriend, bless his heart. He's the most amazing human. But I had to ban him from being anywhere around my booth during an art festival. Because if he was anywhere around that booth, everybody would only talk to him and start asking him about the art. And just, I wasn't even there. I didn't even exist. You know, it's, the misogyny is real. Like, (laughs) I definitely don't want to like drone on about it because I think it is an over-talked topic. And also talking about this can in some ways discredit women for like what they're doing or like it almost implies that like these things only happen because you're a girl or like, I, I don't think that that's true either right i mean it's just a stupid world and sometimes we get the brunt of it (laughs) yeah i was just gonna say i think it happens because people are jerks but (laughs) yeah people just suck (laughs) well and you know the patriarchy (laughs) (laughs) yes let's go burn our bras right (laughs) all right taylor well i know you had mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit more about greenland so um i think a perfect segue into that would be uh, for you to recommend to us who you would like us to know more about and who you would recommend for us to have on the podcast. Awesome. Yes, I have two amazing people, but one of them directly relates to Greenland. So um, I want to recommend Ashley Payne. It's spelled A-S-H-L-E-I-P-A-Y-N-E. And her accounts are Tracing Thought. Um, And you can find her on Instagram and YouTube, but I highly recommend that you go check out her YouTube channel because she's not just a photographer. She is a documentary filmmaker who is just like the most badass woman. I mean, this girl is amazing. So just to tell you a little bit about her, Ashley tells indigenous stories from their perspective. All of her short films are woven together narratives of these people's own words that she like masterfully weaves together. I mean, it's amazing how she does it. Um, And just this year, she won like best director in New York, best documentary short New York film festival. I mean, like she is killing it right now and totally deserves the credit. So if you want to go on a massive, massive binge down a dark hole in YouTube, you should really go check out her page. Um, So it relates to Greenland because a couple of years ago, she mentioned online that she was looking for a project for 2020. And I thought to myself, wow, uh, some of my Greenland research would really make an amazing documentary about the indigenous story there. So I reached out and she said yes. So in 2020, we were supposed to start our documentary film. Then we rescheduled to 2021, plane tickets and everything bought. Now we're rescheduling again to 2022, but look, COVID will not kill our dream. We are making this film hopefully in 2022. We have three months book out in Greenland and pretty much everything logistically planned to tell the story about how climate change, globalization, and tourism are impacting Greenland's rural communities. And um, Ashley is amazing and I cannot wait to work with her. So Matt, you have to interview her. Well, hopefully you can help me make it happen. 
I will make it happen. She's so awesome. And um, I'm sorry, world, but she is also a fiery redhead. So when we work together, things might burn down. It, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cool. Um, then- I do actually have one other person too. Um, that Yeah, I have one other person who has really inspired me. Um, and she's also outside of the box. She is a photographer, but she's more well-known for her art. Her name is Zaria Foreman. Um, you can find her on Instagram at Zaria Lynn. And she is really well-known for taking photos of ice at Antarctica, Greenland, and other places. And then she makes these huge, I mean, wall-sized chalk drawings that are photorealistic drawings of her photos. Oh, wow. um, and they are just insane i mean when you see it you will not believe that it is a drawing and um i the reason i would recommend her is because of how she takes photos and transitions them into art i think that's a fascinating creative process that's so different and so unique um but also she talks a lot about how uh these photos are beautiful photos and that they represent what we stand to lose as a world. And like, that is how she's contributing to the fight against climate change. And I think that that's a really amazing story and her narrative is so powerful. Beautiful. Well, Taylor, how can people learn more about you? Um, yeah, so you can check out my website. It's just Taylor Stone Photography, but again, it's a trick of whether or not you know how to spell my name. So um, you can find me that way. You can find me on Instagram, but don't expect me to post. By now, you should know that. <laughs> I'll post on my stories. Um, and otherwise, uh, I am also working with Mute Workshops, so you can find me on many of their trips. Are you doing any workshops with other instructors through the, through Munch? Yeah, yeah. So I I co-teach with some of them. I have a trip to the Smoky Mountains and also Caddo Lake upcoming with Richard Burnaby. So that's going to be a lot of fun. That's awesome because Richard Burnaby is the episode right before yours. So sweet. Yeah. Who is your who is the funniest uh, Munch instructor? Oh, I don't know yet because of COVID. I haven't gotten to meet most of them in person yet. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. So oh, that will my, be TBD. My money's on Wayne Suggs. Oh, okay. So I have met Wayne. That guy is hilarious. I, yep. I adore Wayne. Yeah, he's the best. All right, cool. Well, Taylor, thank you so much. This has been really awesome. Well, thank you, Taylor, for joining me today on the podcast. I had a lot of fun conversing with you, and I look forward to seeing you release all of that amazing photography soon. Keep up the inspiring work. Well, if you enjoyed our chat, you can join Taylor and I for additional conversation over on Patreon while supporting the show financially. Taylor and I discuss the challenges with and strategies for establishing and maintaining relationships while traveling full-time. I also wanted to thank our, what we call our podcast producers. These are people that have been supporting the show at the $20 a month level or higher. They are the foundation of of our podcast. They include Gary Randall, David Kingham, Eric Stensland, Ken Dono, Anton Everine, William Nurse, Richard Wong, Suzanne Mathia, Frank Otto Peterson, Michael Rum, John Whitaker, Joshua Wallace, Drew Armstrong, Drew Harbaugh, Jim Valancourt, Jennifer King, Craig Young, Adam Bulliard, Michael Damiola, Chuck Mora, Jacob Buchowski, J. Fritz Rumpf, 
Charlie Vandenbrack, Joseph Pennacook, Rob Patterson, John Norris, Jeff Risher, Mark Gardner, Dan Hawk, Matthew Bailey, Kathy Rodriguez, and Serena Jackson. All right, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.